when you go from student to the world, you need to earn your right all over again. It's kind of like, okay, now you're in the big leagues and you need to go carry the water a little bit and carry the water well and, you know, get on the field and play as soon as you can, but know your role. And I think knowing your role is a tough one for me. Could be part of the reason why I pursued the acting out of school because I didn't want to wait in turn and wait in line for anything. I wanted to go carve out my existence immediately. I'm not naturally patient. So the two things I learned to be a, making an impact in the world versus a student is um, be patient with yourself and others and know your role. Just know the role that you play in, in, in the mission that you're trying to accomplish with people. Welcome to the Leaders of Tomorrow podcast. My name is Chris Thompson, your host of the show and the head coach of the Student Works Management Program. This is a show dedicated to young and ambitious entrepreneurs and ultimately the leaders of tomorrow. Each week, we will bring you an inspiring interview or message to help you create the future you know you deserve. Let's get started. Hey, leaders. Really, really excited about the podcast that we have for you. So this is being recorded in December of 2021, getting ahead of our calendar here. Uh, Dan Fanaberia is one of our operators of the year, went through Ivy at Western, and he chose a different path. He chose the artistic path and went and had an eight-year run in Hollywood. He became a union member. He's actually uh, got a bunch of credits and then made a shift and now has an unbelievable sales career that he developed really quite quickly. And he's working with a, a company called Walk Me, which is a, a SaaS company that is growing quickly, just went public this past year. And Dan's a number three to five worldwide, three years row in, in a row as an accountant executive. So we talked about the supply and demand curve of being an artist and what that means and how that can work against us, really. And we talked a lot about sales and the things that make a really great career around a SaaS environment, sales environment, really, really um, perseverance, great habits, you know, skill development. I know you're going to love this podcast. Really, really excited that that we were able to get reconnected and get Dan on the podcast and have him share. And you just feel his energy, his good vibe. And I know you're going to love this pod. So you know what we're out looking for is amazing people, okay, to make a real difference. You know, we're, we're already looking into the 2023 season. We recruit year-round looking for fantastic people. So if you know some young leader looking to make a difference, you know, be a leader that's going to change the world the way that we all want it. Send me an email, direct them to our website, send them this podcast, my email, cthompson at studentworks.com. Have a super fantastic day. Thanks so much. Dan, welcome to the Leaders of Tomorrow podcast. So happy to have you on. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure connecting with you personally leading up to this. I hadn't heard from you in a while um, because we've been so busy and uh, now it's just fantastic to be able to contribute to your vision. Yeah, no. And it's so fun. And one of the best parts about the podcast is unless there's somebody who I really connect to a lot, and frankly, they likely would have been in the first three years of the podcast. So now it's usually two or three, four conversations to have a podcast, but it's great conversations. Like what happened and what are you doing? And I know for you, you've had such an interesting career. I'm so fascinated to have this conversation. So for everyone, Dan was a rock star operator, you know, operator of the year, et cetera, et cetera. But Dan, who are you before the program? Good question. So 
you know, I'm a, I'm a university student at Western in business 20. And, uh, you know, one of your GMs comes and stands at the front of the business class. And there's a kid in the audience and, you know, me listening in. And I see something that looks like a fun summer job. I look, I, I see something that looks like it would be great for my uh, personal growth and resume as I apply to the Richard Ivy School of Business, you know, to be able to have something with, um, you know, a little uniqueness to it from a summer uh, point of view and, and uh, resume line item. And also, to be honest, I think the way that Student Works was presented at the time really speaks to natural leaders and, and people who take accountability. And obviously, there was something inside me that was ready to listen. Now, who was I? Listen, I was a, a high school, prep school kind of athlete guy, football and wrestling guy, and, and uh, you know, kind of hung up my cleat, so to speak, as I entered my university career and focused a bit more on, on uh, social life and uh, academics, and and then found your program to uh, really help me get on a nice path. Fantastic. So what did you take from the program? What did you learn from the program? What do you, What's still impacting you from the things you learned? Well, I learned a lot, to be honest. I mean, even the training and, and kind of the boot camp scenario where you are getting all the operators ready for business, um, and you, you divide the training into, I would call it uh, soft skills training, and then hard skills training. You know, the soft, the soft skills training portion of it, everything from personal, personality testing to sales training to the mirroring, all the initial kind of, uh, you know, baselines that you need to be able to be a, a responsible performing salesperson. For me, that really spoke to me because I never really saw sales as a career. At the time I saw, you know, I, I'd done door to door before in different jobs that involved promotional efforts, but, you know, I never really saw the professionalism of sales. So for me, it, it felt nice to know that you know, this is something you can do to make a big impact in your life and others, you know, in, in a three, four month summer season. So you graduated from Ivy, you graduated incredibly successfully from our program. And most people take that to go and become a rock star business leader, entrepreneur. Well, actually what you are now, just a rock star sales professional or something in an incredible company. You chose a different path. So, so what happened? What had you moving in a different direction? Yes, I, I like to joke that I've had two careers. You know, I'm. Uh, it's interesting. So, right after university, after you know my undergrad, I did my HBA there at Ivy, and it was, um, you know, 2004, spring of 2004 when I graduated. I started out, you know, in business development for an advertising agency, as you know, and um, throughout that time period, I was exposed to. Um, different self-help uh, and, and self-exploration and personal growth programs that had a big focus on authenticity and understanding you know, who you truly are beyond all the BS. And throughout that experience, I, I realized that, and people that I met, that the athlete, all those years in high school and prep school in the US and all that, was also on stage you know, acting in plays and, and, and had an artistic side. And I played drums in a band. And and I never realized that art was so cool until I started exploring who I really was. And the expression of, of being able to perform as an athlete or an artist was really where I felt most comfortable in my true essence. And coincidentally, some of my, some of my colleagues during that time period of my life were studying acting and training as an actor and doing Second City improvisation. And they wrote me in and I had a natural aptitude and joy and uh, met great people and and. I became proficient enough at performance on stage that I decided I was young enough to take a jump. And given the fact that, you know, I, I got an agent in Toronto and started auditioning a little bit, I realized that, you know, I, I had an opportunity to start out my acting career at the Super Bowl in Hollywood. 
because of the U.S. citizenship that I had. I'm a dual citizen because my mom was American. And so instead of instead of kind of cutting my teeth in Toronto, which I probably should have done in retrospect, I went out and, and started from the ground in, in L.A. and Los Angeles and worked my way up, you know, for nine years and got the union and many TV credits and a few films. And so that was a nine year portion of my life prior to what you may be asking next, which was the pivot into uh, software sales. Well, yeah, no, we'll hold off on that. Like, I, this is just a fantastic story. I just love it. So one of the things is, so Dan was talking about Landmark Education. So Landmark Worldwide, I've referred over 150 people. I think we're approaching 200. I've sort of stopped counting of people who have, their lives have been dramatically impacted by the learning. And like you said, discovering who we really are underneath the BS, you know, like, hold on, I've got this mask up and let's take that mask up so that we can be more authentic and vulnerable in our real life. And so first of all, we have a better real life, but, and, and then also, you know, so that we get to be real and we get to determine what we want. And, and so often it actually gets people on a different course, which you chose. So first of all, what did you gain through, you know, those eight to 10 years as an actor and what did you gain? Oh man. I mean, so much, so much that's hard to put on paper because it's like experience is irreplaceable, right? And, you know, in a nutshell, you know, performing and, and feeling comfortable with your performance and learning how to memorize tactically, but then execute seamlessly, you know, memorizing scripts, but being able to like, you know them so well in your DNA that you can actually listen to your scene partners and other actors and respond naturally. Because actors, being an actor is really being a professional human being. It's like you show up at work and you're like, I'm here, boss. What do you need from me? I got an arm. I got another arm. I got a couple legs and a heart. Am I good? Yeah, you're good. Let's go. And everything else you bring is BS. And so the character is only driven by the circumstances and, and the, physical, the physical attributes you associate to the character. So what I'm getting at is that if you realize that all you have to bring to work every day is to be a good human being, suddenly you just realize the hardest thing in the world which is to be a good human being. What does it mean to be a good human being? It means being true to yourself. How do you be true to yourself? So when you see a good performance, when you see an actor perform well and, and you're captivated, it's because they're telling the truth in imaginary circumstances. So you literally, over these eight, nine, 10 years as an actor, you know, you, A, you know, from an artistic point of view, you're learning how to tell the truth all the time, even though the words coming out of your mouth are somebody else's. But in addition to that, you're getting slammed in the face by the business. Because show business is show business. It's not show patty cake. And you, you know, I told you, Chris, 500 auditions. I stopped counting after 500 auditions. My booking rate to get paid work, work that puts food on the table was small percentage. Um, my, my booking rate to get work that was satisfying artistically and paid peanuts was higher. And so no matter how good you are, you're, they're not going to pay you unless they have to. And they're only going to pay you when you're, you have a reputation and a low risk hiring profile that the studios and the casting director and everybody's consensus, just like selling, you need your consensus buyers to say, we can put money on this guy. He's got chops. We can trust him on set. He's going to hit his mark. He's not going to waste millions of dollars. Go. And I got paid to act. That's why I made it quote unquote. And, and I, what I learned a lot was being true to yourself, taking accountability and also being a, a personal salesperson for yourself, because, you know, every single time you're convincing an agent or a manager to work on your team and work for team Dan or a casting director, you can't sell them because you show up and they don't want to know Dan. They want to know the character, Dan's version of the character, but that's still selling yourself, how you hold your shoulders as you walk in the room, how your voice sounds, 
eye contact or not eye contact, your energy, how you hold yourself around other people. You are selling yourself every minute of your life. When you're going to a party, you're networking with with film executives or not, you're trying to get invited to that party. It is Hollywood is literally like a constant treadmill where everybody's running and smiling and saying, we're all having a great time, but man, we better keep running or else we're going to fall off. And so long story short, you learn about personal accountability, personal promotion. A lot of those things were fundamental in, in the, the student works painting management program. It's wake up in the morning, get your ladders on your car, make sure your painters are paid, happy, healthy on time, make sure your GM is on call for emergencies, make sure your customer knows what you're doing. You know, you are, you are accountable for your whole operation. Well, being an actor, you're also accountable for your business. Yeah. And you can see uh, one of the things as well as I think all our leaders can see is, is that Dan took full accountability for his relationship with all the people he worked with. So he's calling people, he's working with people, he's engaging and enrolling the people to do the best they can to actually have as successful career as he can. And talk to us about supply and demand curves in relationship to this, this career and others, but this career is just so massively impacted by the supply and demand curve. Yeah. So one of the big eye openers, you know, one of the big eye openers throughout the pursuit of, of uh, professional uh, artistry, you know, throughout the pursuit of, of getting paid for art was supply demand. It was a rough lesson to learn. You know, it's ironic because I'm sure they hammered it in my head in, in, in university, right. In economics class or at Ivy's business school, but you never thought about it from a job market point of view because we're so spoiled in the Western world. You know, we're, we, we, we have this abundance of wealth and unless you happen to graduate right after the, the stock crash in 2008 or these weird pockets over the last 30 years, which I acknowledge is being very hard and I'm empathetic to those people, the majority of graduates that go to a decent school or not are coming out in, in the Western kind of hemisphere saying, I can get a job. And so, but when you go out and you suddenly are on the bad end of supply demand, when you realize that there could be a hundred people that are good actors that have the same look as you and that have been in LA for the same amount of time. And then there could be another couple hundred that have been there longer. And then there could be another couple hundred that look like you sound a little bit like you that just showed up off the Greyhound bus now we're talking three, 400 Dans out there. I mean, at the end of the day, the writer who wrote the script may not have written a role for a guy that looks like me. And so suddenly now your stack got even smaller. So now that the role, the, the paid acting role is a needle in the haystack and you show up and you see somebody that you've seen on TV before who's famous going for a role that you're going for because you worked all night memorizing and practicing. And suddenly you realize there's something going on here on supply demand. And I think I'm on the short end of this. Yeah. Yeah. And it's making sure that we understand as leaders, first of all, it's totally okay to do what Dan did. Just look at what he got out of it. And the story turns out fantastically. And it's understanding where we are. And there's a bunch of other careers, and we don't need to go through them, where that supply and demand curve work against us. So when you're getting into it, you know it, you plan it, you see it, and you know what you're up against. So I know one of the big challenges, Dan, is you know, like one of the things is, is hope everyone gets to be really successful as an artist, you know, in music or, or entertainment, or it's just so few get rewarded unbelievably. And then there's all sorts of other people remarkably talented who don't get rewarded very well. And then a whole bunch of people who are still talented don't get rewarded at all. So how do you look at the choice to leave or how you might have done that differently about leaving the business and moving on? 
look, when I first got to LA and realized I was up against, you know, a monumental challenge, I gave myself five years. I said, look, if I'm not putting bread on the table, roof over my head, you know, if I'm sleeping in my car and bartending two jobs, that's a different question. But if, but if I can get paid to be an actor and make a living within five years, I'm staying. If not, I'm out. Well, obviously, I, I stayed closer to eight and a half years uh, in, in Hollywood. But those last couple of years, um, what ended up happening tactically was that as a union actor who commanded a certain day rate because I needed to make a living, um, the roles were few and far between and I wasn't booking enough work. Had I taken a step down and lowered my expectations on what I needed to get paid or earn, or I auditioned for movies maybe that I did not want to do that maybe were more kind of, you know, indie films that don't pay as much, I probably could have kept, you know, on the hamster wheel, so to speak. But I, I was unable to kind of cross the chasm to, you know, making six figures or even a little bit under that, like, or just making enough money to drop my side jobs, to be completely honest with you. And so in addition, I, I was married at the time. I met my wife out there. And it was starting to challenge our relationship a little bit because I was having self-esteem issues where, you know, you can only take rejection so many times before you start asking questions about yourself or the decisions you make. And so there was a dark time where mental health was becoming a bit of a challenge. And I realized it just wasn't a safe place for me to be anymore. And, and I think that's why I just realized I needed, I needed to feel success again. And I was not feeling success. Yeah. So Dan, well, you know, if you look back, because one of the things is, is there are leaders listening now who are thinking of going on the path that you went on? Anything that you would do sort of, wish I'd set up this structure so that I would have been able to pull after five years, anything that you would have done differently had you known now what you knew then? I think, you know, in addition to trying to keep yourself accountable to timelines and and promises, you know, maybe surround yourself with people, siblings, uh, family, friends, or a diary, like just something a little more, a little more um, sticky about that five year, because it's very seductive at, at five, six, seven years to say one more year, one more year, one more year. I mean, geez, I'm, I'm, you know, I've got a seven-year-old and a five-year-old. It's like one more play, one more, one more Pokemon game, one more Nintendo. One, okay, we got to go to school, buddy. One more, one more, one more. It's in our natural instinct to not want to quit things that are fun. And it's also, you know, we hear about tenacity and perseverance, right? So we, we, we want to be tenacious. We want to be perseverant. You are that person. I know that to be true. So it's understanding that, no, sometimes we have to say no. So being in communication, looking at. So I wanted to put that in before we jump to, so you made the decision to go, Let's talk about the next phase of your career and just, you know, obviously what a rock star it's been. And so sharing about why you decided to get into the space that you were getting into and talk about moving forward through that. Sure. And I think the segue is tenacity. I mean, it's hard to teach it. And, you know, one thing I remember telling you in recent chats was that the profile of a good student works painting operator leader, the, the profile of a good salesperson, the profile of a good actor, the profile of any performer, any athlete comes in different shapes and sizes and personality types. But I believe that one of the things that they all have in common is grit or tenacity. It's, it's that wake up in the morning and, and you, you, know, you want to achieve something. And uh, it could be as small as making your bed or as big as you know, winning an award, but you can't really teach that. And so obviously I had it to a, you know, to a detriment, as you said, it kept me in LA longer than I should, but my brother was very successful in software sales at the time. And, you know, he and I were cut from the same cloth and I always thought I had more tenacity than he did, as did he. And we said, well, geez, if he can do it, maybe I can do it. And, um, you know, he's, you know, many ways was smarter and, and more uh, patient than I was. And those skills 
translated to make him a remarkable salesperson, award-winning salesperson. He's now a VP actually um, at, uh, at the company where I work, believe it or not. But at the end of the day, the tenacity that we both identified as an attribute that I had was something we could translate into sales. So he recommended I try to get into software sales. And this is about 2013. And I, I couldn't do it because it's like I had no resume. So I, I, I just was taking any sales jobs I could until I found a segue to a small little startup. And uh, the product wasn't really ready for prime time, as they say. But, uh, but, <laughs> but as they say, I broke, the, I, I broke the company in the sense that I brought in so much business, we couldn't, you know, we couldn't get the cakes off the shelf. So you know, it, was, it was a joke that I had with the CEO. You know, sales are good, but to a point, we got to slow down the sales because the product needs to catch up. And I learned a lot. It was a tough go personally because I came from the, the art world where you know, actors were paid to be emotionally organic and impulsive. And a lot of behavior was tolerated in between cuts when actors were decelerating or accelerating into the role. And here I, here I was on the phone acting and just slamming sales and just bringing money in. But the, I wasn't very uh, kind to some of the people around me because I, it had been a long time since I was a true team player. Like as an actor, you have a team around you, but at the end of the day, you're accountable for yourself. And I realized from cross-functional relationships, from sales to product and sales to um, BDRs and sales to marketing or sales to operations, like you need to be a different person inside the company as you are with your customers. Uh, the brashness and the, the cockiness and the, the perseverance doesn't always translate as well inside the offices of a corporate environment. And so learn some great lessons there, despite my performance, in spite of my sales performance. Why don't we hold off there just so, you know, a couple of things to note, you know, when Dan talked about breaking the company, um, you know, he achieved 200% of quota. So, and that literally, I know we had, you know, Chris O'Rourke, who I think you know as well, who has grown a business from a $15 million evaluation to now 600 million over 10 years with an incredible team of people. And he's the executive VP of development. I remember one of his board members saying exactly that gosh, you just keep breaking the company and we've got to completely rearrange how we're doing our business so that we can take on these sales. And so one of the things that happens is top reps like Dan are then people approach, you know, through headhunting or, or, or through LinkedIn and LinkedIn's a great tool now. So ADP approaches, what was that experience? Yeah, great, great segue. And I do know Chris, and it's the perfect analogy. He's a company breaker as well. And keep in mind that let's 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 put out the disclaimer that any above average, any above average software sales professional right now who's making an impact, even if you're not the top, you are being headhunted right now. There is a labor shortage for people with digital sales skills. Okay, full stop. That's all I'm going to say. You just need to be on the upper half of 50%. And I know that anybody with tenacity that can make it through any program like, like this one will be a remarkable salesperson at no matter what they do or not, even if it's not sales. But to your point, so ADP, which is a payroll HR company, software company, uh, knocks on the door. Like Chris said, you get you get approached by recruiters once you start performing and once you you have a LinkedIn presence and a resume. And and by the way, you know the first line in my resume was student works painting, manager of the year. You think nobody looked at that? Of course, people saw that. Did they know what Student Works Painting was? Maybe not, but I called it the Summer Management Program. So I was the Summer Management Program Manager of the Year. That's number one LinkedIn. Now, now take a look at where I'm at, right? So at the end of the day, and just just to call it out that you know it counts. Like what you're doing is one LinkedIn line that you need in your in your journey to get those recruiters knocking on your door. And so I went and worked at ADP, which is we'd call it like the Xerox style sales training in the sense that it's it's a commodity sale. So 
it's not necessarily, you know, when you're baking off, you know, we call it a bake off. If you're competing against another company, if you're baking off between Joe, the painter, you know, at student works painting versus Joe, the painter, that's one type of bake off. If you're baking off versus college pro, which used to be around when I did it, that's a different type of bake off. If you're banking off against a homegrown dad's going to do it, or mom's going to do it. That's a different type of bake off. Well, let me tell you something when you sell commodity sales. And, and, I, and I, I use this term very loosely because ADP would probably not want to hear that. They have a very, they have a very unique ADP is a unique beautiful product. But in the buyer's mind, there's SAP, there's ADP, there's Workday, there's Oracle, there's da, 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 right? And so the sales training that they offer at ADP is remarkable because if you know that your product is differentiated and does have attributes that are unique, but you, you know that your customer is savvy and your customer knows that there's many options to choose from that are in the same realm of a technology your salespeople are your strongest asset. And so when I say you come from the Xerox sales methodology, well, Xerox is selling photocopiers versus Konica and all these. So many of the ADP managers and leaders came from the Xerox world of your best asset is your sales team because that is differentiated. The experience of buying that your buyers have, the project delivery, the expectation setting, and then the actual sales selling closing itself is what propels you above competition. So they invest heavily in training their people. So I received amazing training at ADP, but I also learned some hardships where if you're, you know, sometimes if you're last one in on a team, you're not always going to get the best territory. Sometimes they're just filling a position. They're filling a position. And I still took the risk of working for a large fortune 500 company where I'd be a small fish in a big pond, potentially with no personal ends relationships or credibility to, to guarantee a good territory. I took that risk to get that big company on my resume, to get the sales training. And it's exactly what I got. After three months, you move from major accounts to national accounts, which is a huge opportunity and shows up incredibly well on your resume. Again, with that growth, with that learning, with that development, and just the way you were describing it, you know, one of the things for all our leaders to understand is there's A turfs, there's B turfs, there's C turfs in organizations like this. There's, oh, these are the real cream of the account, you know, accounts that we need, and then they come come across. And so, so there's no question that there's good spots in organizations and not as good spots. So clearly you recognized within a year, year and a half that you weren't in the ideal spot. So what did you do next? A great question. So one of the things I learned in that first software job that I took as I cut my teeth in software sales, being that early stage startup that had a, a wonderful team and a wonderful leader and just happened to have a product that was in development. And I was selling a little too fast, in my opinion, for the development. One of the things I learned in that environment was the joy of being at a startup which by a startup, it's just a company that's still in rapid growth. And I found an opportunity to work for a San Francisco-based company that was hiring in Canada, and it was called AppDirect. And they're a successful company, and they're, they were not public at the time, and they're still not public in the sense that they're privately owned, from what I know. I mean, it's day-to-day with a company like that. But long story short, um, I found this sweet spot where, and again, it was a recruiter. It was a recruiter who reached out to me because... I had the resume on LinkedIn and the performance, and I found an opportunity to work for a company that was, you know, under a thousand people, but but more than ten. <laughs> and so I had a great time, and I got to fly around and get get some great sales training in San Francisco, and visit my brother who was living there at the time, and I got to focus on accounts that I liked, and you know, I learned a lot there, and I learned about selling new technology. So the difference between selling new technology and potentially um, I don't know, legacy systems. Or- yes, commoditized. And I don't want to use the word commodity. Yeah, that's fair. It's just not fair. Yeah, exactly. Because these are these are world-class organizations, exactly, that are competing against 
you know, the legacy technology, other legacy, incredible competitors. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. So long story short, like when you're selling a legacy system against other legacy systems, such as ADP versus SAP versus Oracle versus, versus name it, name it, that, that's one sales skill and style. But when you're selling new technology, what you're doing is you're creating a category, you're educating buyers on how to buy the darn thing. And, and there's more creation uh, and, and creativity that goes into the value proposition because you need to really teach the person how to buy, but you're typically competing against do nothing. And then every once in a while, you're competing against the one other or two other incumbents or, or competitors in this new space. So I enjoyed that. And throughout my time there, and, and Chris, I don't know if you want to segue me, um, but that you know, I, I learned so much that I, I found that sweet spot of where I'm happy selling from a company size and culture point of view. Hundred percent. And and by the way, just again, when our leaders, you know, there are these spaces: legacy startup, really small startup, kind of dangerous, you know. And then and then the different opportunities. And then clearly, this last opportunity, which is a kind of a knock it out of the park opportunity. And you can share more about that. Well, yeah. So listen, I am so lucky. So everybody gets a once in a lifetime, right? It could be simple, you know, it could be meeting your wife, meeting your best friend, having a kid, you know, we, we get a lot of once in a lifetimes. And I think in your career, you get maybe one or two max, you know, I, so for me, I believe, and I, I may be selling myself short. I don't know. I do have kind of a, a bit of a habit of, of trying to be more humble than I should, but I believe that right now I'm in a once in a lifetime where I've been at an organization for, you know, three and a half years. It's where I went after being, being at AppDirect for two years. And it's an organization, an organization that was similar size to that company I was at. So it was, you know, under 700 people when I got hired. Now we're just about a thousand. And, uh, you know, not only have I been successful here, as Chris mentioned earlier, you know, President's Club every year and above, above quota and accelerators and all the accolades of being a, a global top three or even global top five, depending on the year. I've learned so much. I've been selling new technology in a new category. I've been able to tap into much of my natural instincts as a salesperson and as an artist at times, because there's a creativity that comes into selling new tech. And I've been a great team player. You know, one thing I learned, you know, leaving acting to sales, leaving the art world into, into business was how to play nice with your team. And I, I took it so seriously that, you know, I heard from somebody the other day that, you know, I'm one of the more well-liked um, people on the sales organization because salespeople can be real hard asses sometimes. And I just couldn't believe it. I was like, no, I don't believe it. And then I heard it from somebody else. And I, I think, you know, what protects me too is, is uh, I'm customer facing for the most part. So when I do interact with my internal teams, it's very, it's very deliberate and it, it's very encouraging and I'm really folding them in. And it's not like I'm, I'm in the office every day with them, you know? So I think that helps me in my personality, but I have this culture where I work that I love to work here. I make a ton of money. That's why I say once in a lifetime, I don't, I'm making so much right now that I don't know if I'll be able to match this in 10 years from now. So I'm at a point now where I have a run rate where I'm just banking it. I'm just banking it. You know, I mean, you know, I'm 41, right? So like 41, you know, your 40s is your time to make max money, in my opinion. And then maybe your 50s. And then, you know, you tell me, Chris. But at the end of the day, like that's where I'm at. I'm just in the sweet spot. I'm selling new tech at a great organization and, and having a blast. Oh, it's, it's fantastic. And it's really great that you're seeing it because sometimes people don't see it. So it's like, you know, like you said, it's, I'm really making money. And what's he doing, leaders? He's putting it away. He's putting it away for that potential rainy day. Guess what? If there isn't a rainy day, fantastic. Then, you know, so, you know, uh, what is it? Expect the worst, plan for the best, however that works, you know, keep working. So tell us about where I noticed, uh, Dan, and, and I noticed on our LinkedIn 
you know, you, your, your company went public. And that's kind of the first time I went, oh, wow, look, look, oh, Dan's over here. So tell us about what WalkMe does and, and why it's making this big impact and big change in the world. Correct. I was fortunate enough to join pre-IPO for a couple of years and get in there and, and make a difference and drive us to that uh, milestone of, of becoming a public company in June, just this past June, 2021, we went public. So WalkMe is the leader and creator of uh, the digital adoption platform. And in a nutshell, what WalkMe does is we're a technology um, that can overlay in-application guidance and engagement prompts on anything. So what that means is that if you think of getting in a car and driving from London, Ontario to Montreal, where I'm based right now, come visit me. There's different ways you can get here. You can put a GPS in your phone and, and watch it, and it'll react and reroute you and, and talk to you about traffic or police ahead and different ways that it can get you to Montreal intuitively, efficiently, and optimize your journey. Or you can get out at the gas station and read a map and try to memorize the route um, and hope that nothing's closed. That's essentially what WalkMe is doing is we are the GPS for technology. What that means is that human beings that are using technology, whether it is a system like payroll or HR or a CRM for customer information or a, a, a human being who's on the other end of a website trying to pay their cell phone bill or, or change their, their package on insurance, you are interacting with technology. You're interacting with a page. And what if WalkMe could be there and, and come layer guidance, navigational prompts, at the point of need, only when you need the help, not when you don't. And it acts as like a wizard kind of GPSing you through the different forms and processes. And guess what? The actual content that overlays on these applications for human beings to better adopt technology is created uh, easily, easily with a publishing tool that's no coding by the business. So you get these product owners and these business owners at the banks and the telcos and all these companies across the world who are like, I wish human beings adopted my technology better. I wish customers used my sites better and faster, didn't call us as much and just did it themselves to save us money. And I wish employees did the darn stuff that we bought these systems for them to do. Well, what if you had walk me to layer and show up and knock them on the shoulder and say, this is what you need to do. Now click here, now click here, now click here. So we're inventing a cat. We invented a category and we're constantly evangelizing. We do have competitors coming up the ranks now, which is kind of nice to see, but we're still by far the category leader. So cool. I didn't know what walk me was I, like, trust me, I need walk me. Um, so, <laughs> and I can just so see how so many, you know, like you mentioned banks, like just they're, you know, I, I shouldn't say it's difficult. Like the whole idea of technology is to make it easy just so it's intuitive. So it, it seems to me like that's what walk me does, which is just such a fantastic, fantastic uh, software platform. We think so. And the challenge in Selling it, of course, is that nobody wants to be told their baby's ugly in the sense that you built the perfect website, you, you, you built the, the perfect platform, the perfect application for people to use. Why are people having trouble using it? But people forget that humans are humans, okay? And at the end of the day, we need our handheld sometimes. And not everybody's as digitally savvy as other people. And at the end of the day, um, you, you may have built a beautiful platform. But the business process, the complexities behind the business process itself is what's complex, not the UI, not the user interface, but the actual business process. And that's where WalkMe can execute business process guidance. Well, the other neat thing is, is, that, is that because of all the interactions you've had with other software organizations or software programs is, is that you know the things that make a difference, where if you're just running one of them and you think you've got the best interface in the world, 
you're working with all these companies to really make a difference. And of course, you can go show them, like I see on your thing, a 368% return on investment. So so yeah, very, very exciting stuff to sell, Dan. And, and I can see as well, and I hope our leaders can, this is no easy sell. Like this is a very complex, difficult sell. Like you said, this, the, the choice is take Dan on for what he's selling or ah, we're fine. And by the way, you don't lose your job if you say we're fine, right? It's kind of riskier to, to, to make the buy, isn't it? Correct. You you nailed it on the head, Chris. And, and that's why sometimes, you know, you need to think about who you are and what you want to sell in software. And maybe you are better off selling a legacy system where, you know, there's challenges that come with that, but people know what they're buying for the most part. And it's about relationships. And so, you know, if you're building relationships with people and they trust you and they're not going to get fired for buying your product, you know, and you have a good price point and you've, you've, you've done your job of consensus stakeholder alignment, you can go be very successful, especially if you have a good territory at the likes of, of SAP Xerox or even Salesforce, which is becoming a more mature, mature company. Um, if you want to get out there and trailblaze and you know, let's say the compensation plans, let's be honest, are usually more lucrative at, at the startups because they're on hyper growth. And so they can, they can lean in a little higher on their cost of acquisition, but you know, you're going to go there. And, and remember like, in every company, it's 80-20 for sales and revenue, right? It's it's 20% of your sales, rep, sales reps making 80% of your revenue. And, and I don't know what the stats are at Student Works, but you know, in general, it's rule of thumb that you know, you know, everybody does well and you need everybody, but there's certain people that have the combination of opportunity, luck, talent, and perseverance that are driving the majority of your revenue. Absolutely. Some follow-up questions. So Dan, how do you keep learning? That's one of the things that just seems just so clear from me, you know, 20 years in, you know, you just are a learner. How do you keep learning? How do you look at learning? It's interesting. I mean, I usually learn from the people in my house. I think your, your, your kids and your spouse or your partner or your friends are your best teachers if you're lucky enough to have them because they have to deal with you every day. And, you know, you, you have a constant mirror in front of you all the time. And your guard is down when you're at home. Okay. So that's your number one learning. Your number two learning is how you feel with yourself. How do you feel when you're falling asleep at night? How do you feel when you wake up? You know, that's the acid test for if you're making the right decisions in your life. And if you're not feeling good falling asleep or waking up, you need to ask yourself the why behind the why behind the why. So a lot of this learning is, is internal and in your house. Then when you leave your house, when you get outside of your body, you get outside of your house, you have your colleagues. And how are they reacting and performing and executing based on how you need them to collaborate with you as a partner or a team member? And, and, and what's your impact on them? Now, sometimes you get really lucky and you get academic learning opportunities that smack you in the face. So like perfect example, I'm not very academic. I, you know, truth be told, went to this great undergrad business school, but I didn't have the best grades in the world. Probably got in based on as they say in olden world days, chutzpah, right? Like at the end of the day, I had the student works painting resume. I was a big brother for United Way because I love uh, mentoring um, other, other younger youth. And I had good enough grades to get in. But like most people were way smarter than me, you know, that, that got into that school. So at the end of the day, me not being a natural academic, me being a natural, more kind of performer, athlete, you know, actor type guy, you know, I don't have academic opportunities that often, but it smacks you in the face. So perfect example, I'm the president of the Ivy Alumni Association here in Montreal. Well, there was a virtual case study last night that Glenn Rowe was teaching, who's like a famous professor who has published cases at Northwestern and Harvard and all this stuff. And because I'm the president, I had to promote it because that's my responsibility. And I wanted to be a good alumni president. Well, guess what? I also signed up and took the class. 
So there I am 90 minutes yesterday learning about this amazing, brilliant case study and the man who wrote it and contributing and, and listening and debating with other alumni and the business. And so I find myself in these academic situations where I'm kind of forced to be brought back into them, but naturally I don't lean towards academia. Awesome. Well, that's great. That's great. Um, and so what about, what did you need to change about yourself moving from student to being a, you know, really, really powerfully value creator in the, in the, in the world right now? It was a tough one because I was really, really brash and cocky, you know, when I was a student, like a college university. And that was even some feedback from some of the um, summer jobs I had after student works. Once I got into the corporate, once I got into corporate a little bit, like the summer corporate jobs that I won, like I, I, I talk about supply demand. I was one of two people chosen to be uh, an intern in marketing at Pepsi in, in Mississauga, you know, as, as an undergrad at Ivy. And, you know, your performance reviews from your mentors and they're like, you're good. You're a spark plug. You're smarter than everybody I know, but you're cocky. You're just too cocky. You need, you just need to calm down, tone it down a little bit, walk in a room, wait your turn to talk. You know, it's just being born with a little bit, maybe, maybe being born with a little bit too much of something like, uh, maybe I went, I went to too many good schools. I, I, I thought, you know, I just, I think I just thought I earned my right before I really earned my right. And so at the end of the day, you know, when you go from student to to the world, you need to earn your right all over again. It's kind of like, okay, now you're, you're in the big leagues and you need to go carry the water a little bit and it carry the water well, and, 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 you know, get on the field and play as soon as you can, but, but, but know your role. And, and I think knowing your role is a tough one for me. And, uh, it could be part of the reason why I pursued the acting out of school. Cause I didn't want to wait in turn and wait, wait in line for anything. I wanted to go carve out my existence immediately. I'm not naturally patient. So the two things I learned to be a, making an impact in, in the world versus a student is, um, be patient with yourself and others and, uh, know your role, just know the role that you play in, in, in the mission that you're, you're trying to accomplish with people. Yeah, I think that patience really understands and that every new new jump, it's it's kind of like going to grade school to high school and then going to uni, uni, university. It's you're in a new spot. What you did back there doesn't matter. Of course, it does matter, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't give you it gives you a little bit of cred, you know, but if you if you don't handle it well, it's certainly your, your cred will fall apart real fast. So what about key habits, Dan, that that one of that our young leaders want to take from you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's funny, like it's fun to share these because, you know, you've heard them from other people, you know, and I don't, I don't know, you know, who's on the other end of this podcast, but, you know, I remember hearing from somebody once like, wake, make your bed every morning. Cause it's like some, something that you can just accomplish and, and start out your day with an accomplishment. So that's something I do. Um, I keep a clean inbox now, again, is that a little bit OCD maybe, but I have so many folders and subfolders that you'll never see more unless I'm on vacation, which, which is fine. If I'm not on vacation, you'll never see more than I think the maximum I've ever seen is 10 emails that are not sorted. So my, I keep my inbox empty. I want Zen. I, if I look at my inbox and see a bunch of stuff, that is disorder. And, and for me, I have prioritization and tasks and different ways to track what's important to me in my day-to-day -day and time management. Um, I don't get overly granular about that. I am not looking at a whiteboard every day. Like I just have a natural instinct to know where the money is. I'm in sales. Okay. Follow the money, always follow the money. And that could mean the sale, the person who has the money, the person who knows the person who has the money, the person who knows the person who knows the person who has the money. If you follow the money, that's your time management and sales. That's it. Okay. But at the end of the day, that instinct I have for following the money and knowing who has budget and how to get to the person who knows who has budget 
the end of the day, you know, that's my time management driver and that's my clock. That's my hourglass. But having said that, there is some tactical organization to my calendar, um, blocking out time for certain things that I need to do. And then, yeah, keep a clean inbox and make your bed in the morning. Yeah, it's really, uh, you know, again, really what you're pointing at is just integrity. You know, it's like Dan's life works, Dan's, you know, on his stuff. And you can't become worldwide top account exec, uh, you know, three years running, you know, unless you are like, it just doesn't work. You know, uh, you know, yes, you've got to have all the great interpersonal skills and listening, et cetera, but that just makes all the difference. So Dan, I know we're running into um, your end because, because, you know, Dan, Dan's we're, we're end of year four quarter. So lots of opportunities that Dan's looking to close and complete another fantastic year. So I've committed to getting him off this podcast so he can go uh, again, go, go make things happen. So final question, Dan, when you think of the leader of tomorrow, what comes to mind? I think we need to be more ethical. I think as leaders, we need to be more ethical and strategic. We need to think about long-term gain and ethics and why and how we want to make the world the world that we want and we want our children to live in. And, and the reason why that's important is that, you know, it's not the 80s anymore. It's not greed is good. It's not, you can't just play that game anymore because not only is there impact to the planet and impact to, to human um, quality of life when, when leaders are only pursuing growth at all costs. But we've seen case studies and, and business cases that the companies that have leaders who make ethical, high-integrity choices in leadership end up making more anyways. So now you're driven by two factors, ethics and integrity to drive a better planet. And also, guess what? You're going to make more money. And it's something that we finally correlated as a, as a, as a planet that there are those uh, bad actors who can be successful with low integrity and ethics, but they're not scalable. They're unicorns. And that's why you hear about them all the time because they make the news. But the people who wake up in the morning and are the best people they can be and lead with ethics and integrity are the, are the majority of the movers and shakers in this world. Yeah, no, I, I can't agree more. And and I think you're just pointing at the at the 80s where there's just a, a a real perversion where money was the leading thing. It's like profits first. It's no pro value comes first. And and why do I want to work in your company or why do I want to come together and work with a bunch of really good people if we're not valuing good things? You just can't hold on to good people if the values aren't there, right? I just just can't see it, Dan. Correct. So yeah, correct. Especially in the world of, of tomorrow, of digital, of post-pandemic workplaces, it's, you know, culture and community is going to be one of the leading factors that keep talent. And uh, I couldn't agree with you more. Well, Dan, just so awesome to reconnect. I know we will stay connected more moving forward. And, uh, and again, uh, just uh, continued success. And again, uh, have yourself a fantastic holiday season. You too, Chris. Thanks for having me. And good luck to all of you future and current leaders out there. Hey leaders, I hope you enjoyed this episode. By now, you are aware that we work with ambitious students every single year to not only help them run their first successful business, but to further their development as a leader and give them an unfair advantage in the future over their counterparts. It's why starting now and only for the next few weeks, we'll be on campuses across Ontario, Quebec and the East Coast interviewing students who think they have what it takes to start their first business and get started down their path of entrepreneurship. 
If you think you have what it takes or know someone who might be interested, visit leaderspodcast.ca slash apply and start your application process today. Once again, it's leaderspodcast.ca slash apply. And I can't wait to see you on the other side.